Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading this morning from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is page 1014 in your pew Bibles. My focus this morning as we continue on the series in 1 Peter is going to be on verses 5 through 9, but I'm going to read verses 3 and 4, which is what we focused on last week, because it flows and ties into the text this week and and the subject that we're going to be looking at. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we stand in your presence under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, reading and gazing into your word, I ask you that you would bring revelation, understanding, and insight to us. Let us see you as you really are, the ultimate reality and grace and love of this universe and for our lives. Lord, touch us to open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To recap, last week, because it does flow into what we're looking at this week, we looked at verses 3 and 4 and saw that if you are regenerated, Born again, you have experienced it, but you didn't save yourself. You didn't decide, hey, I think I'll be saved. Uh, I'll put myself in the status of one who stands righteous before Christ. I mentioned the issue with the phrase, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior. It's a dangerous idea. Saving faith is more than mental assent. It's more than an acknowledgement that there is a God or that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is God and fully divine. It's more than mental acknowledgement. The Bible says that the devils believe and they tremble, but the devils are not saved. Saving faith pledges allegiance to Christ. It bows ourselves before Him in a posture of worship and says, I am going to love Him with my mind, soul, heart, and body. 
It is the kind of faith that justifies, that places us in right standing with God on the basis of Christ's work on the cross and on the basis of His resurrection. But make no mistake, according to Scripture, God does the work of our salvation to the extent that Peter says God causes us to be born again. And God does so according to His great mercy. We talked last week about divine justice. If I stood before the judge of the universe and he gave me justice, I would go to hell. It's His great mercy that allows me to be born again. We don't take credit for our salvation. Romans 9, for he says to Moses, and Paul's quoting Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I won't go on like we did last week about how Paul says, Who are you, O man, uh, as the clay to speak back to the potter? It speaks to the sovereignty and the providence of God. So we are a new creation in Christ. And the fact that we are a new creation calls for a creator. We were lost. He found us. We were blind. He granted us the gift of sight into his reality we were in darkness but he shined his light into our lives second timothy 2 it is god who grants repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth it's always god doing the work in scripture ephesians 2 8 by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of god so we may say yes but i chose to believe and we'd say yes you made a decision but even your choice the ability to move forward was a gift of grace that God granted to you. So He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So justification, new birth, regeneration, they all happen at the beginning of our walk with God. We all start off somewhere. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were all rank sinners without God and God saves us. But that brings us to our text today. What about now? What about from the time that you're saved till the time at the end? What's going to keep you then? Since you came to faith, there have been failures. There have been temptations. There have been doubts. I've known people who I consider and still consider great people of the faith who have testified they have had seasons in their life where they questioned if God was even real. The people of God struggle in life. We battle flesh and powers of darkness and sometimes even each other. So what about the time between when you came to God and were baptized and everything felt wonderful and the time that you breathe your last breath or Christ returns for His church, which is right now? What about that in between? <clears throat> if we are all honest, most of us don't live life feeling very spiritual. We don't get up every day feeling like this spiritual powerhouse. We may understand our position in Christ, seated in heavenly places. Paul says, writing from a prison, we are seated in heavenly places. It doesn't always feel like that on a Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock when the job is coming apart at the seams. 
They're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be sitting in heavenly places. I'm living the same miserable life right at this minute that my unbelieving co-worker's living. What is this? Just, we live in real life. It doesn't always feel real spiritual. And that's exactly why we need verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The form of the phrase being guarded is a present phrasing. It means to continually being guarded. It is a constant. If we are being guarded, what is it that is guarding us in this text? It's God's power. So it's God's power that is guarding us. Despite all of our bad days, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation in the end. And we're being guarded by God's power. That's what gives us the security. There's nothing more powerful to guard than God's power. God is the cause of our salvation and God is the cause of us keeping our salvation. <clears throat> so the next time, and it won't take very long, could be today, could be sometime this week, it won't take long. The next time you're feeling discouraged and feeling less than spiritual, go read this verse. 1 Peter 1.5 What is being revealed in the last time for us who are guarded by God's power? Salvation. Final salvation. The consummation of what God started in us at the beginning of our walk with Him. The consummation of when you were baptized and you came out of the water and you felt like 30 pounds lighter and life looked so good and then all of a sudden you hit a wall and real life comes into effect. You get a vision that the Scripture gives that says there is coming something called final salvation and it is held like a trust fund for every believer, and it's being guarded for you by God's power. It's waiting for us, a treasure stored up, waiting to be inherited by those who hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. They have a phrase, trust fund babies, wealthy children born into money, they're going to be wealthy when they turn a certain age. A lot of times it's 25, 30 years old. And at the stroke of midnight, they become instantly wealthy. And they know their entire life, I've got this trust fund that is stored up. Now, I don't know what that feeling's like. I'm going to guess none of us here know what that feeling's like to be a, a trust fund person. But just to know that, hey... <clears throat> I can struggle through these next three years because when I turn a certain age, I'm going to be really, really rich. Well, all of us sit in that position this morning. Is that there is something stored up for us in a trust fund called final salvation that is waiting for us. It's being guarded by God's power. That ought to give us more encouragement and more joy than if we knew we had $100 million waiting for us at a certain age. 
For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those who He predestined, He called. And those who He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. <clears throat> so Peter writes, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want us to see, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So Peter is writing to people who have not physically seen Jesus. He's moving from the early believers who many of them knew Jesus as a man, the man Christ Jesus. You could shake Jesus' hand. You could walk with Him down the street. You could sit down and eat a meal with Him. Jesus laid His head down at night and slept and woke up. He lived life as a man and this is the man they are now worshiping. But now Christianity is spreading such that it's going into other parts of the world who don't know Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus. He is now dealing with believers who, like us, have never seen this Lord. They've only heard of Him. We've heard of Christ. We have not seen the Son of God in His body. And this has been the case for almost every believer in history. There were a very limited number of eyewitnesses. I was thinking this morning, when the last of the eyewitnesses of Jesus would have died, and it would have had to have been early 2nd century. There could have been children alive who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus, but they would have been dead by the early 2nd century. And after that, everybody in Christianity have been like us. They've only heard of Him, but they've never seen Him. Or have they? Have we? But yet we believe in Him. We believe in someone who we have not physically seen. They say, seeing is believing. Say, well, in a sense, no, because we have not seen Him with our eyes, but yet we do see Him. And I want, us, I want to show you how we see Him in a reality just as real as if we saw Him in the flesh. So verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith does not require sight. Verse 8, we have not seen Him, and yet we love Him, and yet we believe in Him. The Christian faith is such a faith that it allows a person to believe and not see in the flesh. Why? Because God appears to us through His Word. That's how we see Him. I love 1 Samuel 3.21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord. The writer equates Samuel seeing and the Lord appearing before Samuel, but it happens by the word of the Lord. So I want you to see this. I invite you to turn to Luke 16. I'm going to, uh, 
I want to read several verses here. It's a story that Jesus tells. I'm not sure this is a parable. Jesus speaks in a lot of parable parables. This is so specific with names that I take this as a, a real story that Jesus is telling. It doesn't read like his other like parables because there are some specific things here. So I, this has been equated in the past as a parable, but I'm reading it as a historic story about historic people who actually lived and something that actually happened. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between you, us, and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Send him back into the land of the living. Abraham said he can't come to where you are in the grave. And so Lazarus says, or the rich man says, okay, send him back to the living because, verse 28, I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. He's speaking of the scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They have scripture. And Abraham said, if scripture doesn't convince them, Somebody getting up from the dead won't convince them. That's how we see. The Scriptures are sufficient. The Holy Spirit is present among us. It proceeds from Christ to mediate the reality of the Scriptures. So you don't need Jesus in the flesh to know He's real or to experience Him in His fullness. You don't need a sign or a wonder or a miracle or a dream to confirm something. You have the Word of God and it is sufficient. John 20, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You are in Christ and filled with His Spirit and God has given you the ability to read His Word and believe it by faith and the word is enough and that belief i said all that to lead us to this part that belief leads 
to inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. A songwriter named Barney Elliott Warren wrote a song in the early 1900s that I heard my entire life growing up in church. Joy unspeakable was the song. I have found His grace is all complete. He supplieth every need. While I sit and learn at Jesus' feet, I am free, yes, free indeed. For it is joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory, full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never yet been told. I have found the pleasure I once craved. It is joy and peace within. What a wondrous blessing I am saved from the awful gulf of sin. Verse 3, I have found that hope so bright and clear, living in the realm of grace. Oh, the Savior's presence is so near, I can see His smiling face. I have found the joy that no tongue can tell how its waves of glory roll. It is a great overflowing well springing up within my soul. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I didn't know for years until I read this phrase in 1 Peter that the songwriter pulled that wonderful song from this text. Now the ESV, rather than use unspeakable, says inexpressible. It's the same meaning. It is inexpressible joy because we have believed in Him. And it, that joy, what is filled with glory, the joy that you have that is inexpressible is filled with glory. Now, remember, Peter is writing to believers who are facing persecution. Peter is going to die shortly after writing these letters. He's writing these letters from Rome in the early mid-60s, and he's going to die a martyr's death. Tradition says he was crucified upside down, and he's going to die a martyr's death. And he's writing to people. The first sermon in this series was elect exiles. He's writing to people, he says, you are elect exiles, scattered throughout the world, under persecution from the Roman Empire. And yet he says, as someone who is being persecuted, to people who are being persecuted, you can have joy that is inexpressible in the midst of all of this suffering. They're facing trials and struggles and oppositions. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. We rejoice in the midst of those trials. And right after Peter talks about being grieved by trials, he says there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. So the question that I pose to all of us this morning is this, are you rejoicing with joy that is unspeakable, inexpressible, and is your joy filled with glory? Are you rejoicing at all? You often hear me talk about exalting in God's glory. And that word exalt means to feel joy. It's not exalt, it's E-X-U-L-T, to exalt, to revel in, to feel deeply the joy. That's the word Peter is using here, to feel joy and to rejoice. God created us to be creatures who seek pleasure. Christianity is not a religion of denying yourself all 
pleasure. Quite the opposite. We are encouraged by Scripture to deny pleasure in sinful things, but to seek superior pleasure, superior joy in Christ alone. So we can get certain types of happiness and laughter from other places besides God. There are stand-up comedy is popular for a reason. People love to laugh. It's a temporary diversion from the realities of life. So are sports, movies, some books, TV shows. We find refuge from the cares of life. We're like, man, life's tough. We're going to take this little diversion here just to find a little levity from the realities of life. And those things can all be okay in measured doses, but none of them bring the kind of joy you can exult in. I know this is a football town. I know that. But after the debacle that was the Dallas Cowboys, whenever it was, two, three, four weeks ago, I've lost track, um, I, I realized watching some people, listening to some people, how closely their joy and true happiness that they're seeking is tied to a team. Like it ruined people's lives for weeks. Some people, not everybody. But I realized how, just how closely their identity was tied to this. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it's the, the, mon- the next Monday morning, you know, productivity on the job, no doubt, just slacked in a lot of places because people are just so down over this. And it's like, you can't have your joy tied to those things. There are people who are in love with being in love. And they'll bounce from relationship to relationship looking for a joy that is only a mirage outside of God. Because if you're looking for your happiness in another person, your true joy you can exalt in another person, I promise you, you're going to be very disappointed. Because we're all just broken, fallible people who disappoint regularly. There is only one kind of joy that is inexpressible, and that is the joy that is filled with God's glory. Because it never disappoints. It never stops. We try to express it. We try to come up with words in our praise and in our singing. That's why we love singing, because singing allows us to feel emotions. It allows us to put words into feelings, to to try to capture that feeling that we exalt in, to try to express it. This is what song is, is we try to express emotions and things. Can you imagine if you... If, if there was no music in this world and we just tried to express the same things by words and not song, the words would fall flat, but when put to music, music is a gift from God. And that's why we, we participate in that when we come together. But there are no words in the human language. There are no tunes. There are no songs that can express the joy that is in Christ. And yet we constantly try, say, Lord, I want to express to you the joy that I feel towards you. C.S. Lewis wrote, There is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. I, I can't do chipper, lighthearted, flippant church. Can't do it. Just can't do it. Um, serious joy. I just came back from a conference 
that the theme of the conference, last year and this year, there's, a, there's an underlying theme, but the conference is called Serious Joy. It's too good to waste on jokes. I love C.S. Lewis's quote, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to, we walk in here, I, I, I cannot do church that is a laugh every 30 seconds, because I walk in here and on one hand, we're weighted down with the realities of life. You come together enough with the people of God, you're gonna deal with cancer, you're gonna deal with wayward children, lost jobs, lost houses, lost marriages, families split apart. Those are weighty, heavy things. And on the other hand, we come in and there's the weight of God's glory. There is a kind of joy that doesn't make you somber, but it will make you sober to the realities of life on one hand and the realities of God's glory on the other. And in the midst of all that, you can have such a true joy. Not predicated on the circumstances of this life. Money in the bank, your body's healthy, the kids are well behaved and successful, your marriage is rock solid, you can have joy in Jesus that is inexpressible. But if the opposite of all that is true, you can still have an equal amount of joy in Jesus that is inexpressible, not predicated on circumstances whatsoever. It's predicated upon you abiding in Christ. There's a joy that's not tied at all to situations. So you could weep with the realities and the struggles of life, and in the middle of your weeping, you could say, I have such a joy in Jesus. The joy comes because you believed in Him. So Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The NLT translates verse 9, the reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. We can have joy in Him because He delights in us. He delights in us. We delight in Him. He delights in His bride, the bride of Christ. We are sons of God. That is not a that is not a gender-neutral phrasing that Paul uses. There are times when you can take that kind of language in Scripture and make it gender-neutral. It actually refers to mankind, meaning men and women. But in this case, we are the sons of God. It is intentionally sons. Because Paul will also use the language, you are heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus He's putting us as joint heirs, His Son, us lining up as the kingdom people with His Son. Now for the ladies who feel left out in that, remember the church is the bride of Christ and we as men have to live with that as well. So it goes both ways. I've thought that for years, I'm the bride. You were the bride collectively together. The church is represented as the bride. And he takes pleasure 
in his bride. Isaiah 62, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Look at verse 3, Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall be no more termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. ESV puts that whole phrase in capital letters like it's a title. My delight is in her. You shall be called this phrase. God's delight is in His bride. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So we see the language of the church as the bride of Christ in the New Testament and Revelation, but we also see this foreshadowing all the way back in Isaiah which if you study your Old Testament, or if you study your New Testament, you're going to see Isaiah informing language all the time in the New Testament. And that's what's happening here. The bride is foreshadowed in Isaiah, and God says, I take delight in my bride. John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. The whole chapter is a prayer. Of Jesus. And he says, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Michael Reeves, who I heard this week he's a minister from the UK heard him speak this week I don't think he talked about it in in the session that he did but I've heard him elsewhere say this that the way the best way that we can think of God and know God is as father Reeves said and I never thought about this, and I heard Reeves say this, I said, yes, this is true, because if we say that we know God is creator, God has not always been creator. If we believe there was a time when there was nothing but God, which nothing is eternal but God. So there was a time before the foundation of the world, before the earth and the world was framed by the word of God, there was a time when there was only God. So he was not a creator then, yet he's going to be a creator. I know we're, we're wrapping our head around some big things, but say if I know God is fundamentally his, the ultimate reality of God as creator, well, there was a time before there was a creation. But if I know him as father, he has always had that heart of a father. Jesus said, you loved me before the foundation of the world. We as the people of God are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, partakers of that love that He has for us as a father. And that, that idea of father doesn't always conjure up great feelings because there's people in this world who have had horrible fathers. You say, well, yes, they failed, but they were not the original father. The original father for whom all other fathers should 
build their fatherhood after the template, the original father is God. That's how we know him. Because when we, when we know him as father, now it's relational. He loves us. He's not just creator. He's not just someone who grants us salvation. He is our heavenly father. Jesus said, when you pray, you should pray our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. It's relational. So we look into the glory of the Father and we exult in it. We stand on the edge of His glory and we drink from the well of His holiness and we exult in it. And we say, there are no words to describe the joy that I have in Christ. Christianity was never supposed to be defined by following rules or dead, dry, legalistic ritual. That's never what Christianity was supposed to be. Everything we do in the ways that we worship, in the ordinary means of grace in our gathering, the church calls this the ordinary means of grace, the coming together of the people of God week after week to sing, to fellowship, to read scripture, to worship together, to pray, to preach the word, to partake of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, the ordinary means of grace. That's how we worship. We pray, we preach, we do all of this so we can know Him in His holiness and so that we can exalt in His glory. That is my encouragement to us this morning, is to know Him as Father and to believe in Him and to allow that belief to produce a joy that you can exult in, a joy that is not tied to anything else going on in your life, so that you can get up every day and say, I have a salvation that is being guarded by God's power until that final day. There will come a day. Our lives are very temporary. I drove past a cemetery um, I'm trying to think where it was at. I'm thinking around here it was actually this week I was going from the airport to St. Paul and I passed uh, a large cemetery and looked out there and I saw all the headstones and I thought, you know, every single headstone, there is a story there. There are hundreds and thousands of stories for each individual times the hundreds of headstones. Every one of those people born into the world. There may have been headstones out there of someone who lived two years, five years, 20 years, 30 years. No doubt a lot of those headstones represent people who lived well into old age, that had children and grandchildren. And I thought every one of those headstones has a story to tell. So many of those headstones represent lives. There is somebody buried six feet under who have children and grandchildren who have influenced the world for better or for worse and just the, the complexity of life all represented there in a graveyard. And then multiply that all over the world. 
everybody who ever lived who worried about money, who worried about this, who had uh, issues in life with family and spouses and all the things, who had car trouble and all the things that they worried about, all those things are gone and now their soul lives on forever somewhere. How concerned, how many of those people were concerned about a salvation that was stored up guarded by God's glory for when the time comes that they would spend their body would spend the rest of the time decaying six feet under but their soul is alive somewhere and alive forevermore that is all of us all of this is temporary saw a sermon years ago where the, the preacher had pictures on poster boards all around him on the platform and it was pictures of cars and houses and uh, just hobbies different things and he had these stickers and it said temporary and he just walked around and he said that's and he'd slap that sticker on that car and that's temporary that's temporary that's temporary but your soul is eternal that's what matters where we will spend eternity. And for those that are in Christ, we have such a promise, such an assurance, such that it can fill us with inexpressible joy that we exalt in, that we feel, that we know. Let's pray. The Apostle Peter wrote these words shortly before his death, words, Lord, that you inspired, that you moved upon him to write, that have been kept for our admonition, <clears throat> not written to us, <clears throat> but no doubt written for us and for our edification and for our strength, that we, like the recipients of this letter, those elect exiles, scatter around the world, that we too are elect exiles. If we were saved, it was you that caused us to be born again to a living and abiding hope in the Word of God. And then the promise that you have kept for us a final salvation for those that are in Christ. So Lord, I, I pray this morning that in the interim, in the in-between, between now and the time of your return or the time of our departure from this life, that you would not allow us, through your grace, to become deceived by the cares of this life or the cares of riches, that your grace would guard us in this life from deceit and from deception, from the drunkenness of pleasure. Lord, and that every day that we would exalt and a greater reality that is to come, kept for us, stored up, guarded by your power. So I pray even this week, Lord, as we go about our lives, that we would do so as kingdom people. Lord, that your hand of protection would rest upon us, and that you would bless us and touch us, keep us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.